Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today we're returning to the Thomas Seeley book The Lives of Bees and I will be reviewing chapters three and four which give um, a pretty detailed overview of beekeeping and humanity's connection to the honeybee. But first, as always, um, a little bit of homesteading news. If you've been following along on Instagram, you will have seen that I put together some new beds, um, one of which is entirely for tomato plants and zinnias that were given to me by my beekeeping neighbor. He grows all of his vegetable and flowers from um, from seed. And so when it comes to having to thin them out, I was very happy to be uh, given the option of bringing some home. So I filled a whole bed with those. It's a mixture of different kinds of tomatoes and I'm really looking forward to um, that big harvest. And he also sent me home with some beets that I have in a little container garden on my deck. Um, I've never really grown beets before so that's going to be pretty interesting. I also ended up having to move my three sisters garden, uh, three sisters being corn, beans and squash. The place I put it in, I realised that I'd miscalculated when I set up the bed there and I calculated the amount of sunlight without taking into account that we didn't have full regrowth of the foliage from the trees. So once all the leaves came back in in full, um, I realised that it was actually casting shadow onto the bed. Uh, So I ended up sort of abandoning it where it was because I can use it for other things and set up a new bed out the front where we get a lot more sunlight and not long after after putting my corn seeds into the new bed they started sprouting and funnily enough around the same time the corn seeds in the original bed also sprouted um there are behind because of the fact that they're not getting as much sun so I've kind of left them where they are if they grow full size I have enough seeds that I could maybe set up two three sisters uh, beds I don't know how well they'll do but we'll see so anyway that's pretty exciting I'm pleased that that's moving forward I've also been mowing a lot it's that time of year where it's just mow 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 which is time consuming because I have my little red push mower but um, it's a good calorie burner and I do need that. I um, I don't really talk about it very much here on the podcast, but um, uh, over the last two years, I've been tracking my calories and uh, working on losing weight. And I really started for health reasons. I have a, I have a long history of um, struggles with my weight and self-esteem and when I was younger I was anorexic and you know it's never been a positive thing for me but um when I had some thyroid issues a couple of years ago it seemed like the right time and I've lost um just shy of 60 pounds over two years and honestly when this whole quarantine thing started um I just got sick of it like I was tired of calorie counting I was tired of just having to input that constantly and you know oh if I want to have a drink tonight I can't have this or whatever and my friend and I who we've kind of been quarantining together in a way you know we get together once a week and we both like to have a drink and I just didn't want to have to think about calories well the other day I realized I had gained just a couple of pounds but I, you know I haven't hit my final goal yet so that felt you know pretty bad so I have to admit that it does make me more likely to get out there and mow as much as I can because I know that it's a good calorie burner and it's a good way to get exercise and fresh air. Although lately my allergies have been so bad. Um, I'm allergic to basically all trees in this area and grass seed and a couple of other things that I've started wearing the mask that I wear for coop cleanup and then also lately for going out in public. I started wearing that when I mow just to help but I, I do think it's helping a little bit so those of you out there who have like a proper um, mask on hand that you've been using to uh, hopefully protect yourself from COVID when you go out uh, that can be used for mowing the lawn if like me you are allergic to grass and speaking about kind of the lawn and grass and all that kind of stuff um 
every time I go out and it's a nice day, I think I, sh- I need to get working on building my chicken tractors, which are big pens that are movable and you can put your chickens in it during the day and they're safe from predators, but they can sort of scratch and dig at a different spot every day and it helps you like turn over the lawn it helps with pest control and it's good for them because they're eating you know the weeds and the grass and and the little bugs and stuff that they scratch up and I'm behind on it because I am nervous about going to Home Depot because I need to get the lumber cut and so I'm going to have to interact with people (laughs) which sounds terrible but it's more like You know, I know states are reopening. I know a lot of people are seeing that states are reopening and have stopped wearing masks and have stopped sanitizing. And I'm I'm just not there yet. You know, I have an autoimmune disease. I want to be as careful as possible. I think people are so eager to get back to their regular lives that they're quick to drop certain protections. And so, and I'm not like that. I'm I'm maybe paranoid a little bit. So I've been putting it off because I don't want to deal with the people at Home Depot and like increase my exposure but I I need to get moving on it because it's you know it's the perfect time of year to do it and I want my chickens to have some time to like stretch their little legs and you know get to forage and also when they're foraging I don't have to go out every day and forage for them so every day I go out and I pick a ton of weeds and I dump them in the runs for them so that they can you know chomp through some nice greens and I have to cut up the greens for uh, my special needs girls. Speaking of, Agatha's doing super well outside. She's finished her antibiotics and she's just on, um, I'm doing every other day dosage of her pain med and that seems to be working really well. Um, She's getting around well. She actually apparently is feeling so good that she started laying fairy eggs, which um, for those of you who don't know fairy eggs are just like really really tiny little eggs they often don't have a yolk in them and you'll see them sometimes with pullets who are going into their first uh, egg laying months or uh, a very elderly hen that is declining sometimes you'll see them in the spring if your chickens didn't lay over the winter they start with these little fairy eggs and um, Agatha's been laying fairy eggs on and off for a while now Um, but now she's actually laid quite a few within a a short span of time so I think she must be feeling much stronger. I did notice today that she does still have a little bit of lice but it's within controllable levels so I'm still kind of dusting her every couple of days with diatomaceous earth and a little bit of um, um, that like insecticide powder So I do need to go and do that today um, and just make sure that the lice don't take hold. But she's grooming more. She's happier. I've noticed some feathers are regrowing. She's just doing really well. I also spent some time, um, you know, we had some, we've had some really nice weather where it's been like hot and a little too humid for me to get a huge amount of work done outside but definitely good weather for painting equipment and so I spent a couple of days putting together different um, bee equipment so I had some deep supers deep boxes to put together I got them all unassembled and I also had some nuke boxes that needed to go together and um, so I finally got those done but I will say that I bought them unassembled and they have like puzzle pieces. I don't know if that's the correct term, but where they connect together and then you um, screw, then you put the screws in and where they're supposed to connect together, almost every single one didn't fit and had to be modified somehow. And it was a huge pain in the butt because I didn't have the equipment on hand I had to make do with what I had and really um, I just it took a lot longer than it should have because of it and some of it now when it connects together it's not connecting as well as I would like so um, I think in future I'm either just going to pay that extra money to have them to buy them pre-assembled which is what I've done historically or I'm literally going to make them myself so I can guarantee that all the connections 
like fit properly uh, so that was a little disappointing I think some of the wood wasn't great quality either I hate to say it but it felt a little soft so I painted you know quite a few coats of paint on it to like in the hopes that it will hold up and you know it's done now so I'll make use of it I don't think it's going to fall apart but I'm not pleased with the process so um, my advice to you is if you're looking at assembled or unassembled if you have the money go ahead and do assembled and if you want to save money I think you will have better luck making everything yourself so from there let's talk about my hives I'm actually not going to go into a lot of detail about my hives because I'm thinking that for my next episode I'll do like an in-depth update on what's been going on here because um, you know, we're going into, well, we're, we're in the flow now, we're in the nectar flow, things are getting very busy in my hives, and I've been busy working them, so for instance, um, I did a mite test on my three hives, and all of them had undetectable levels, which is excellent, I was very pleased about, I was especially pleased that the package bees didn't have mites because I've heard that it's not uncommon for you to get a package and to find out that actually quite a lot of the bees in the package had varroa. That's relatively normal now. So that was great. Um, I've been putting drone comb in because they're pulling wax. So that's um, part of like a pest management plan for varroa. I've been inspecting regularly for signs of swarming. Um which I have seen um, and by this I mean um, in particular so when we talk about swarming a lot of the classic signs will be queen cups being made on the, the bottom of the frames which if you don't knock down or if the colony has already made the decision that they're gonna swarm they fill those you know the queen lays an egg in there and they start pulling them into proper queen cells and once you see queen cells on the bottom of your frame that means your colony is already decided and you have to act quickly and it can be a little more challenging to prevent swarming so for instance in queen marker's hive um, I saw some preparations some indications that the colony might be considering swarming but they haven't made the decision so by that I mean what I found was I saw an increase in drone production so they went from having a modest amount of drones to suddenly a lot of drones all at once and they were still um they still had drones yet to hatch so that's one sign on top of this I also saw a lot of queen cells all at once on the bottom of frames so one frame for instance had about 10 queen cells all along the bottom now the good news is when I found this, there were eggs, the queen was still laying. And the reason this is good news is once a colony decides that it's gonna swarm, the queen needs to stop laying so that she can be light enough to travel. So a fully gravid queen is a clumsy flyer. And my understanding is that the queen will stop laying and then her girls kind of like exercise her like they chase her around the hive and she like runs around and runs around until she loses a little bit of her mass and that enables her to be a better flyer and she builds up her flight wings and all this kind of stuff her flight muscles sorry so the fact that my queen was laying means that the decision hasn't been made so I knew that this was the time to either do a split where I literally split the colony in half or make a nuke and that was what I'd wanted to do was to pull resources from this hive to make a nuke and that's what I ended up doing I also knocked down those queen cups because I had confirmation of eggs and I had confirmation of my queen in there so I was like I can get rid of these cells so I knocked them all down I also I've seen things as well like um like backfilling which is when as the bees hatch the baby bees hatch the girls fill in those cells with you know nectar or pollen before the queen can get into lay and this is pretty common and I like to say that the bees are lazy because what I want them to do is pull wax on the frames so there's more space but the bees are just efficient so they're like well why should we spend all this energy making wax if we can just fill those cells when the babies come out so backfilling is happening in all my hives which means I'm 
giving them more frames or adding additional boxes. I'm trying to encourage them to pull the wax out. Um, I've taken off the feeders now because we're in the nectar flow and I'm seeing a good wax production from the hives so they don't need the feeders. I've made two nukes now, one from my strongest colony that came out of winter and one from my second strongest colony that came out of winter. And actually the other day I made a third colony, which is either, so it's not in a nuke box, but it's a nuke setup. I didn't have any more nuke boxes, so I had to put it in a 10 frame deep. And um, I'll go into details about all of that next week because there's a lot of information to share. I also was visited by the state apiarist, an entomologist, and the county apiarist. And I, I can discuss that again next next episode about sort of what that was like, why they do these inspections. Do you need to be worried about them? The answer is no. <laughs> and um, why you should be registering your hives and agreeing to these things and so on. So yes, next episode, I'll do a detailed information about uh, all of that and uh, share like, you know, how I set up my nukes, the form, um, how I set the frames up. So um, how many brood frames, how many honey frames, how many pollen frames, etc. So I'll do that next, next episode. Because today is the continuation of my book review of The Lives of Bees by Thomas Seeley. And it's going to be, um, you know, there's quite a lot of information to share. And I think it's very interesting. I know the first um, couple of chapters, my first episode on this, there was a fair amount of um, data to share. And I do worry a little bit that it probably blurred into each other slightly. But I but overall, what we discussed in chapters one and two was basically that the premise of this book is that Thomas Seeley, um, a scientist who's been researching and studying bees, like the honeybees in particular, most of his academic career, is studying the wild honeybees in Arno Forest after um, Varroa came to the US. And what we learned in chapters one and two were that these wild colonies did have Varroa infestations. And the question that Thomas Seeley asked was, is Varroa decimating these colonies like it had decimated managed colonies? To which the answer was no. So then he was asking why. Why was it that these wild colonies were managing to survive with Varroa when our managed colonies were not? And the first thing he started to look at was colony density in wild areas which is basically how close are colonies in wild areas are they packed into the same tree are they spread wild uh, widely apart and what he found was that um, wild colonies are widely spaced apart and this was found in areas of the US that he studied. And then he also looked at some international studies on the same thing. So he looked to Europe and Russia and some other places that basically had the same conclusions that in the wild, honeybees will nest quite far away from each other, which is very different to how we keep our hives. You know, we have them in apiaries. And I mean, for instance, I have a lot of my hives sitting right next to each other. And this will be important later on. So we're going to start today with chapter three, which is entitled Leaving the Wild. And the opening quote for this chapter is by Yule Gibbons from his book Stalking the Wild Asparagus, uh, published in 1962. And the quote is, each time I cut a dripping square of wild honeycomb and eat it, wax and all, I marvel at its perfection, which no processing could possibly improve. Thought that was pretty nice. So this chapter really is looking at humanity's connection to the honeybee and also the honeybee's history. So the ancestry of the honeybee, Apis mellifera, extends back to the Oligocene times, which is about 30 million years ago. And that really surprised me. I haven't spent a huge amount of time, honestly, thinking about how old Apis mellifera actually is, but that was a little bit of a shock that it could go back as far as 30 million years ago. 
And we know this thanks to the discovery of fossils, such as those found in Roth, Germany in the 1800s, which is where excavators found a honeybee, uh, in, uh, which is called Apis henhorsi, perfectly preserved in profile. And when they examined this fossil, they found that this bee was carrying pollen, which indicates it was a worker bee, which in turn indicates that it was part of a larger hive system. So this likely means that even so many years ago, the honeybee was operating as the colony that we're familiar with now. So basically a colony where they make honeycomb, where there's a queen, there are workers and there are drones. Other evidence about the history of the honeybee is found in rock paintings, which depict humans harvesting honey or raiding hives. And these rock paintings have been found all across the world um, with notable examples found in France, Spain and Africa. So for example, in Eastern Spain, rock paintings that have been dated back to about 8,000 years ago depict figures using ladders or vines to climb up to a honey nest and harvest the honeycomb using baskets or buckets to hold the combs in for their return to the ground. And the advanced age of these fossils means that honeybees have always been part of our natural world since modern humans, Homo sapiens, evolved some 300,000 years ago in Africa. And early man, we know, were hunter-gatherers. And there is evidence that honey was something that these hunter-gatherer societies actively sought out. And this does make sense if you think about how not only is honey absolutely delicious, but it's energy rich, containing about 1,450 calories per pound, which would make it highly desirable for early man. Today, there are societies that still rely on honey as an important food source, such as the Hazda of northern Tanzania. During their rainy season, honey is a very important source of daily calories. A Hazda man will spend approximately five hours a day searching for honey and averages a daily haul of three pounds or 1.5 kilograms. In a similar vein, the FA people of the Atari forest in the Democratic Republic of the Congo also hunt for honey during their rainy season, and they will also consume bee brood as an important source of protein. For the FA people, men and women will search daily, and they return with an average of 6.6 pounds, which is about three kilograms of honey and brood per day. So this is a critical food source for them during these rainy seasons. And it's likely that honey hunting in this manner had a very minor impact on wild colonies. Thomas Seeley says, um, I'm going to quote him directly here on page 62. Only when honey hunting began to be superseded by hive beekeeping, this is when people began keeping colonies in man-made structures, did the impact of humans on honeybees begin its rise to the sky-high level that exists today. So the origin of hive beekeeping was likely about 10,000 years ago with the emergence of agriculture in the Fertile Crescent of the Middle East. The earliest known evidence of hive beekeeping is a stone bas-relief painting from the Sun Temple of the Pharaoh Niasere, circa 2400 BCE, which is approximately 4,500 years ago. This painting depicts men taking honey from stacked hives and storing them in containers. Hieroglyphs above the image show the Egyptian word nift, which means to create a draft, which indicates that they were using some kind of smoker even that many years ago. In 2007, archaeologists found 30 intact hives plus 100 to 200 hive remains in the Jordan Valley of northern Israel while excavating ruins of the Iron Age city of Tel Rehov. Dated around circa 970 to 840 BCE, these hives are approximately 3,000 years old. 
Each hive was made of an unfired clay cylinder with a length of 32 inches or 80 centimetres, an outer diameter of 16 inches or 40 centimetres, and an entrance of 1.3 to 1.6 inches or three to four centimeters. And this is worth noting because these measurements match those of hives still used today in the Middle East. Both these ancient and modern hives are stacked horizontally in parallel in three rows, about one meter or three feet apart and three tiers high. So Thomas Seeley then goes on in the chapter to detail the methods used by ancient Middle Eastern beekeepers, referencing the book The World History of Beekeeping and Honey Hunting by Eva Crane, which was published in 1999. Now, I'm not going to go through everything that he discussed, but I'm just going to summarise it briefly. And this is to say that ancient Middle Eastern beekeepers worked at the back of the hive to avoid guard beads, bees at the entrance. They did use smoke. They sliced out the honeycomb to harvest. They were careful to leave brood behind. They would monitor brood during the swarming season and they would cut out queen cells or would take those queen cells and move them to basically create a split, which is all very similar to what we're familiar with now. And other historical evidence that we can look at is, um, for instance, the Roman writer, and this... (laughs) I love this. This name is so Roman. Um, So his name was Lucius Junius Moderatus Colonella, which I just love. And this gentleman wrote a book entitled Dure Rustica, which means on agriculture. And it was a 12 volume work with volume nine dedicated almost entirely to the beekeeping methods of the time. So from this book, we know the following things about how the Romans kept honeybees. They had three rows of hives stacked vertically. This was the preferred configuration. They used horizontal hives. It was advised to use uh, cork tree wood for hive construction as ceramic hives proved to be too hot in the summer and too cold in winter. Colony management techniques included uniting weak colonies, capturing swarms, using swarm control methods, etc. Moving hives was very common in spring and summer to take advantage of uh, foliage and forage. And killing drones was recommended as they were considered bees born of larger size than the rest, which I find very interesting. And I'm going to see if I can find a little bit more information on that because that brings up a whole host of questions. But moving on, uh, Romans also insulated their hives in the winter with stalks and leaves from plants. Now, after the Roman period, beekeeping north of the Mediterranean had two distinct trajectories. There was tree beekeeping and skep beekeeping. For tree beekeeping, this was where you would harvest honey from colonies found in tree cavities. And these colonies would be accessed by tightly fit doors. This method of beekeeping was practiced across northeastern Europe And that makes sense because this area of the world had very heavily forested regions where many nesting sites were available and there was also plentiful nectar and pollen sources. Now, some beekeepers would find wild colonies and then add the doors to them and just revisit them, whereas others prepared nest cavities in trees in the hopes of enticing in a swarm. Most nests were 5 to 20 metres or 15 to 60 feet up the tree with an entrance 4 inches wide and about 3 foot tall. For those who were making cavities, they would use a chisel and they would excavate a 10 to 16 gallon chamber. Trees were marked to indicate ownership, usually with the landowner symbol, which could be really anything. It could be ram's horns or lines that intercrossed in a certain way, but would make it clear to others that this was already a claimed nest site. Cavities would be checked in the early summer for occupancy, and then honeycomb would be harvested in late summer to early autumn. This form of beekeeping was incredibly important in medieval times within Germany, Poland, the Baltic region and Russia. And part of this was because honey was a very large source of income during this period. So we know that honey was used extremely early on um, to make mead. But then we see that by 700 CE, 
beeswax was needed in increasingly large quantities for candles, especially for Christian institutions. But over time, tree beekeeping was kind of phased out and hive beekeeping largely, probably due to convenience, became the preferred method. Although it should be noticed that traditional tree beekeeping is still practiced in the South Ural region of Russia today, and those trees and forests are heavily protected in that region. So to quote Thomas Seeley again, honeybee colonies were disturbed only lightly by the practices of tree beekeeping. Tree beekeepers merely provided wild colonies with suitable nest sites and collected a modest fraction of each colony's honey stores toward the end of summer. And it's important to note that there was so little impact because as the chapter goes on, we're really looking at how humanity has impacted the honeybee as a species. So next up, we have skep beekeeping. And this was predominant in Northwestern Europe, including Western Germany, the Netherlands, Britain, Ireland, and France. And that's because in this region of the world, large trees and forested regions were not quite as plentiful. So they used a skep. What's a skep? It's a large inverted basket. And it comes from the old Norse word skepper, which dates the use of the skep for beekeeping to around 800 CE, which is when the Vikings raided and started to inhabit England. Now, skeps were traditionally made of woven plant stems or wicker covered with clay and cow dung, and then later coiled straw became a popular um, substrate use. Um, so if you can imagine it, I, you've probably seen these. So usually when people draw sort of a pretty depiction of a beehive it looks like a basket turned upside down made of coils and it's on something flat and this is because traditionally you would place your skep on a large flat stone or a wooden stand to make it easier to access Skeps were traditionally kept under shelter, including shelves built into the walls of houses, which were called bee bowls, and you'll often see those at monasteries. Skep beekeeping was sometimes called swarm beekeeping because it relied on capturing and producing swarms. So each skep colony would be left alone to build up through spring and early summer, and then they would kill the bees to harvest the honey because there was no easy way to access the honey in this kind of hive designs. Now the skeps were kept small on purpose to encourage swarming because this is how people could get more bees. According to English books from the 1500s to the 1800s, skeps in size were between 2.4 to 9.5 gallons, which is nine to 36 liters, which is much smaller than our modern hives. Now, methods used to kill the colony for harvest included sulfur and drowning through immersion in water. Some people tried a non-lethal method where you would turn your skep upside down so the wide bottom is facing up. You would place a skep on top of it and then you would smoke the bees in the hopes that they would rush up into that empty skep above them. But the problem with this is because of the time of harvesting, you're chasing your bees into the skep it doesn't have any beeswax in it and then you're expecting your bees to make enough honeycomb and get enough resources to survive the winter so sadly even though this was trying to be non-lethal most of these bees actually wouldn't survive through the cold winters now by the 1800s opposition to the killing of bees for harvesting honey began to grow and this is going to prompt a change in how people do things so the next section of the chapter is entitled From Fixed Comb to Movable Comb Hives. And some of this might be familiar to those of you with an interest in beekeeping because I'm about to talk about Lorenzo Langstroth. So in 1848, Lorenzo Lorraine Langstroth resigned his ministry at the age of 38 and he moved to Pennsylvania. There he opened a school for young women and he became a commercial beekeeper. Now, Langstroth practiced glass jar beekeeping as buyers wanted honey in the comb to prove what they called its purity. Now, the hives at use during this time were squat wooden boxes about six inches deep and 18 inches square. 
They contain 12 wooden bars parallel to each other, spaced 1.4 inches from centre to centre and set into rabbits at the front and back of the box. Langstroth would place a lid on top, which contained circular holes in which he would place glass jars, which the bees would then go up into, make their natural comb, fill with honey, and he could just pop those jars off and sell them. And there are similar methods that we use today. Now in this hive, bees attach their comb to the sides of the box and the lid, because the lid was resting directly on top of the frames. So the bees would go up there and they'd get their little propolis and they'd just suck that all there and make it nice and sticky. Now this is good for the bees, but it was bad for people because it made getting into the hive troublesome, time consuming, and also destructive to the honeycomb. And Langstroth was determined to solve this problem. And he started by cutting the rabbits slightly deeper, which lowered the frames and provided space between the top of the frames and that hive cover. And this led to the discovery of bee space. So what is bee space? To quote Thomas Seeley, bee space is a structural rule followed by the bees in which corridors seven to nine millimeters high are left open for passage. Now Langstroth realised that bee space could solve the problem of bees attaching comb to the walls of the box as well. In his journal entry for October 30th, 1851, he sketched his plan for this movable frame hive utilising the bee space measurement. Each movable frame would be surrounded by a bee space except at the two parts of suspension. In 1853, Langstroth's book outlining his movable frame hive design was published. This book was entitled Langstroth and the Honeybee, a Beekeeper's Manual, and it detailed his invention and led to better management of hives and therefore a much larger honey harvest. Now, this invention happened to coincide with the rise of powered machinery, excuse me, that made woodworking faster and more affordable, which might explain why this particular hive design became so popular and widespread. Now, over time, many more inventions have made beekeeping a little easier. There are honey extractors, frames with foundation, queen excluders, fume boards, bee escapes, you name it. Now, these have been particularly important for commercial keepers because it allows them to grow exceptionally large colonies in the spring and the summer. It helps them prevent swarming and therefore losing population numbers. And in turn, that increases their honey harvest. And this desire for more bees for larger populations to make more honey led to the spacious hives that we're familiar with today. So a commercial keeper right now might build colonies with five or more boxes that yield a honey harvest of £220 or more per hive. So why is all of this history of beekeeping important to know? Why is Thomas Seeley telling us all this? Well, I mean, aside from the fact that it's just interesting, and I think that anyone interested in bees and beekeeping are probably happy to have additional information. Fundamentally, it's important to note that modern hives are three to five times greater in size than wild colony nest cavities. And Thomas Seeley is going to go into this in more detail in chapter five. And to quote him, when we look back across the 4,500 year history of beekeeping, we see clearly that, the, that Lorenzo L. Langstroth and the other inventors of modern beekeeping have given beekeepers better hives. Unfortunately, as we shall see in the coming chapters, modern beekeeping has not given the bees better lives. Now that's pretty concise and pithy, and we're going to get into that a little bit more. So next up, we have chapter four, which is entitled, Are Honeybees Domesticated? And the opening quote is from Langstroth's Langstroth on the Hive and the Honeybee, published in 1853. And the quote is, the honeybee is capable of being tamed or domesticated to a most surprising degree. Now, what exactly do we mean when we say domesticated? And to quote Seeley, Domestication is the process of human selection and breeding of wild species to obtain cultivated variants that thrive in man-made environments and that produce things useful to humans. So, arguably, honeybees could be said to be domesticated. 
Now, human-directed selection started about 15,000 years ago when wolves were gradually domesticated as hunting partners leading to dogs. 10,000 years ago, as mankind moved from hunter-gatherer societies to more agricultural societies, domestication expanded to include all manner of things from crops, livestock, pets, even microbes such as brewer's yeast. And to quote Celia again, as a rule, the process of domestication produces organisms with traits that enable them to thrive in environments managed by humans, but cause them to struggle in the wild. So the images of beekeeping on various artifacts indicated that honeybee domestication began as far back as about 10,000 years ago. And to understand the origins of beekeeping, Thomas Seeley looks to the potential motives and opportunities. And I've narrowed those down to about three that I think stood out as the most important in what he writes. So the first one is the honeybee tendency to nest in cavities the size of a water pot or a large basket which is about 5.3 to 10.6 gallons. And this made me wonder, did swarms move into these empty objects or did people see the comparable sizes and realise that they could keep bees in these objects? And then the second point is that um, the fertile crescent at the onset of agricultural living had bountiful bee forage, but few suitable nesting sites, which made the creation of hives a necessity for beekeepers. And the third point is that bees are not consistently aggressive. They're actually often docile and reluctant to sting. And this would also make them more appealing and easier to manage in hives. So why are bees reluctant to sting and in particular why are they so reluctant to sting when they're full of honey this is something that we see in swarms often called a wet swarm so when bees swarm um, half of the colony is going to go with the old queen and what they do is they consume as much honey as they can and they do this so that they can go on this journey to the new nest site And once they get there, they still have enough resources to start building new honeycomb so that the queen can start laying again. Now, stinging is fatal to honeybees, as we know. And a swarm needs as many bees as possible to succeed in establishing this new home. So it's possible that this is why honey engorged bees are so reluctant to sting, that instinctively they're aware that their death in this swarming situation can decrease the chances of survival. And early on, we see evidence, like some of which I've already discussed, that humans learned that bees exposed to smoke will gorge on honey, which then leads to this reluctance to stink. And it seems that this might be a survival strategy that allows bees to flee deep into their nest when smoke is detected, where they can just sort of wait out the fire using the resources of that honey. Support of this theory comes from a field study of Cape honeybees, Apis mellifera capensis, that found that colonies in fire decimated areas did not flee their nests, but actually retreated deep inside them where propolis acted as a natural barrier between them and the flames so these bees would smell smoke in their environment they would gorge on as much honey as possible and they would go into the deepest recess of their nest to basically wait it out now this response really makes a lot more sense than the common belief that bees gorge on honey in preparation to flee the nest because a gravid queen is a clumsy and ineffective flyer and she'd be unlikely to leave. When we go out to our hives and we smoke them and the bees retreat deep into the the base of the frames and start consuming honey, that queen is gravid. Doesn't it make more sense that they're retreating because they're going to try and wait out this fire with their queen who's unable to leave? To me, This is a very compelling argument and I think really disproves our idea that when we use smoke, bees consume the honey because they're going to leave. Because if there's one thing bees don't want to do, it's leave their queen and leave their brood. As I mentioned earlier, we know that ancient Egyptians used smoke when harvesting honey. 
Now, the question is, how did they learn this? Well, based on this Cape honeybee study, isn't it possible that early man noticed that honeybees would retreat from smoke and then found a way to use it to their advantage? Now, when we're attempting to increase productivity of domestic animals, we can change their genes or we can manipulate their environments or do both. So let's look at the milking cows that we have today, like the Holstein. These have been very carefully bred to boost milk production. They're fed a diet proven to also boost milk production. They're often kept confined because too much moving about can use up calories and prevent more milk production. And then we even remove the calves at a young age because we don't want them going through a natural process of raising their young because we're trying to take advantage of that boost in milk. And we don't even let them breed naturally anymore either. We also use artificial insemination to tightly control what line of bulls mates with what line of cows. Now, a Holstein cow, having been so carefully bred for milk production and very little else, would not be capable of surviving well in the wild. If we just released it into the wild, it's not going to do that great. In contrast, honeybees continue to thrive away from our influence. So why is this? Why are honeybees so capable of living so well in the wild? Now we know that it's not a case of bees lacking heritable genetic traits. Rather, beekeepers have been unable to take the tight control of honeybee reproduction that would be needed to establish very strong lines of bees that have particular traits. Up until the 1800s, Beekeepers had no way of controlling bee reproduction and therefore had to rely entirely on natural selection. Langstroth's movable frame hives started the slow move to more control, as now beekeepers could examine their colonies more closely, which include like removing swarm cells from the best colonies and adding to those doing poorly to try and boost those colonies and uh, infuse stronger genes. In 1889, Gilbert M. Doyle published a book called Scientific Queen Rearing. And in this book, one of the methods he talked about was recommending that you take virgin queens to locations with colonies where drones had been carefully selected for desirable traits. And then in the 1920s, Lloyd R. Watson invented the tools and techniques needed for artificial insemination of queen bees using micro manipulators. In the 1950s, Harry H. Laidlaw refined this technique and the equipment used so that drone semen could be injected deeply into the queen's overduct, which made artificial insemination of queen bees more reliable and and precise. So this finally made well-controlled breeding possible, although not especially accessible for the majority of beekeepers. Seeley then discusses a few successful honeybee breeding programs to demonstrate that we can manipulate honeybee genetics. So the first one is a American fowl brood resistance study. It was started in 1934 and the goal was to breed bees that were naturally resistant to American fowl brood. The investigators were O. Wallace Park and F.B. Paddock, who were entomologists at Iowa State College, and Frank C. Pellet, who was an editor at American Bee Journal. In 1935, they set up a testing yard of 25 colonies that had been selected for showing some level of resistance to American fowl brood. Now, they would test this resistance by inserting comb containing cells filled with AFB scales, which are the dried remains of larva killed by American fowl brood. Colonies either removed these cells entirely, cleaned them out thoroughly, or did nothing at all. After they started their experiment with this 25 colonies, seven colonies, which is 28%, showed no signs of disease and had therefore removed all the AFB scales and were considered resistant. In 1936, they went on to establish a semi-isolated apiary where the queens and drones from resistant colonies could mate without genetic influence. So they felt more confident that non-resistant bees were not mating with their virgin queens. In 
from this semi-isolated apiary, 27 colonies were then tested. And nine of these colonies, which is 33%, showed resistance by the end of the summer. This process of breeding resistant colonies to each other and then testing was repeated over 10 years and the percentage of resistant colonies steadily increased in that time period. After 1944, queens in the study were artificially inseminated, which allowed even tighter control of the genetics and the eventual results was a nearly 100% resistance in all the colonies by the end of the 10-year study although having said that the way I phrase that might have been a bit confusing of all the colonies almost 100% of them were resistant that might be a little clearer So the second study is the alfalfa pollen preference study which I've never heard of and I thought was quite interesting So in the 1960s William P. Nye and Otto McKenzen, who were workers at the US Department of Agriculture, started this study. And what they did is they inbred lines of honeybees categorized as either high or low collectors of alfalfa pollen. And the intent was to see if bees could be bred to prioritize alfalfa pollen over other forms of forage. And they were looking to this because honeybees mainly visit alfalfa for the nectar, not pollen, which means they're not very effective alfalfa pollinators. And they wanted to see, because alfalfa is an important crop in the US, whether we could breed honeybees to be excellent pollinators of this important crop. So through careful selection for breeding, they found that bees could be bred to both increase collection of alfalfa and also decrease it, which I never would have considered that being an option. So I thought that was very interesting. And by the end of their study, certain lines collected 68% of their total pollen from alfalfa with the control colony averaging at 18%. So that's a huge boost. That's a huge increase that they managed to breed into these bees. Now, this was largely funded by seed companies because they wanted to see if these special lines of honeybees were going to be good pollinators for them. But ultimately, this kind of didn't follow through. Ultimately, it was discovered that the... um, there are solitary bee species native to the US that are actually much more effective and numerous pollinators for alfalfa. So it wasn't really worth it to invest long-term in these um, increased alfalfa pollen collecting honeybees. But for our purposes, it's more proof that we can breed certain genetic traits into Apis mellifera. Now, the final study is actually sort of a conglomeration of a lot of different studies, and I've just called it hygienic behavior. So hygienic behavior is the removal and disposal of diseased brood, which includes larvae and pupae. And there's been lots of different projects over time that have focused on breeding hygienic bees to combat tracheal mites, varroa mites, and chalk brood, which is a fungal-based infection. Now, usually how we test for hygienic behavior is you take out some brood comb and you freeze some of those cells of brood using liquid nitrogen and then return the comb to the hive. Colonies that remove the frozen cells within 24 hours are considered hygienic. And this mechanism, this hygienic behavior in bees has proven to be an important habit or behavior in terms of managing varroa tracheal mites and chalk brood in colonies and so there are still projects and breeding lines today to increase this genetic trait now the next section of the chapter is entitled no distinct breeds of honeybees so although there are many variations in color morphology and behavior of honeybees which is usually based on geographical location, no distinct breeds have ever developed. And this is very different from other animals that have been shaped by their prolonged contact with humanity, such as our beloved dogs. So for instance, my whippets and my greyhounds are sight hounds, so they have better vision than other dogs because they were originally bred for hunting and it was deemed that um, they needed better visual acuity to hunt effectively and they're also 
I know some people think they're ugly. How dare you? <laughs> they are beautiful babies. They're also very, very long legged. They have especially large chests to increase their lung capacity for running and they have quite large hearts. They also actually have different blood values, which include an increase in red blood cells, which makes them excellent donation uh, animals for blood for other dogs. And this was all carefully bred into them over time because we wanted them for hunting, for running, and then eventually for sprinting quickly once they went from more of a hunting working breed to a sport racing breed. To quote Thomas Seeley, why is it that bee breeders, unlike dog breeders and cattle breeders, have changed Apis mellifera so little over the past 10,000 or so years? Well, that's a good question. And the, it seems like one of the most obvious answers to that is that humans have only had the ability to artificially inseminate and then rear queen bees in the last 100 years or so. And that's not to be overlooked because artificial insemination is really the only way to very, very tightly control what um, drone genetics are being added into your colonies. And then Thomas Seeley says, any changes in the genetics of honeybees created by the work of bee breeders will, over time, be erased. So think about it. If you have this tightly controlled study and you're raising, like, let's go back to the American fowl brood bees. You've created this incredible line of American fowl brood resistant bees. But unless you keep continuing with those methods, in your apiaries and you prevent outside genetics coming in from wild colonies or being near other managed colonies, over time, if you can't meet those um, requirements, then your bees are gonna start what we call outbreeding, breeding outside of the specially chosen lines. And over time, that resistance is going to be what I call it washed away, washed away by other genes that come in and that natural selection has deemed to be more um, crucial for the survival of those colonies. So again, we see that honeybee genetics are primarily affected by natural selection. And this is why bees continue to do so well in the wild. And arguably it's why they are so keen to swarm in the spring because they are ready to reproduce. They don't need us. They don't need our help in that. They are going to go out there and they're going to breed. And Thomas Ely sums it up quite well by saying, the step back to living in the wild is but a short one for the bees housed in our hives. And that's very true. So this next section of the chapter is entitled, A Semi-Domesticated Species. Humanity might not have fundamentally altered the genes of honeybees, but we have succeeded in effectively manipulating their environment to our benefit. So first we moved them from the natural nesting cavities of trees into hives. Then we developed tools and management techniques that allowed us to more effectively manage the survival of each colony from queen rearing to swarm prevention. Through these methods, we maximized our financial gains by increasing our honey harvest or by renting out our hives on pollination contracts. And no better example of the latter is that of the mass movement of colonies every year to pollinate the California almond groves. It's about 1.5 million colonies that travel each year just for this purpose. And that's more than half of all the colonies within the US today. To quote Seeley, a beekeeper can increase the income earned with his or her colonies by, no by manipulating not just where they live, but how they live. And all of this is why Thomas Seeley believes that it's more accurate to describe our beloved honeybee as a semi-domesticated species. Because he's looking to the wild colonies again. And what he says is, these wild colonies show us that honeybees have not yielded their nature to us. For whenever they live on their own, they still follow a way of life set millions of years ago. Now, the big question, really is why is all this important? Why did he write this whole chapter on it? Why have I outlined it all here? What does this mean for us as beekeepers? And these are just my thoughts on that. Understanding the species that is being studied and our relationship to it 
gives us a clearer view of any results of those studies which are going to be discussed later in the book. I see these early chapters as Thomas Seeley laying the foundation for what we're going to discover about wild colonies and how they're handling varroa infestation. Another question would be, when you're looking at a study of wild colonies, is can we take what we learn from wild colonies and effectively apply them to managed ones? And it seems that this lack of true domestication would say that yes, wild colonies are a good model system to study when we're looking at ways to better manage our own colonies. It's basically saying, look, here is evidence that these wild colonies are not so different to our managed apiaries that we can't compare them, that we can't take our understanding from one side or the other and apply them together. We can do that. So it's kind of legitimizing why his results with these wild colonies are so important for those of us who are managing honeybee colonies. I also look at it as understanding our tools and our management techniques and how those have evolved through times and how that allows us to learn not only what has changed but what could be changed and what could be improved upon. And then finally I feel like being mindful of this wildness of our own bees will help us better understand them. And this makes me think of, um, I discussed in my last episode um, on the Beekeeping Today podcast, and there was one keeper who was looking to wild colonies to consider how to manage his hives for varroa management. And this was long before this book was ever published and how he had found things that the wild colonies did that he found beneficial like brood breaks and raising his own um, colonies and doing artificial swarms and so on and to me that's saying even further support for this book that yes there are things that we learn from wild colonies that we can apply with great success to our managed colonies and ultimately I feel that that's what this book is about and I think further chapters are going to go into um, much greater detail on that and that's it for this uh, this week's chapter review um, I hope you stayed with me there was not quite as many figures and data and math in this uh, section which is great the next chapter is on the nest of wild honeybees I'm quite eager to get into it Um, but I might take a break again from the book review next episode we'll see how things go but I'm thinking like I said earlier that I'll do more of a detailed overview of what I've been doing in my hives how I've put together my nucleus colonies why I did it um, resources that you could look at if you're new to um, learn how to make your own nucleus colonies I might go over splits again because we're definitely at that time of year Um, and I might touch on swarming again I I noticed from people that I follow who are beekeepers and uh, local beekeeping communities have been talking a lot about the number of swarms that we've had this year and there are some colonies that are so insistent on swarming that they've always swarmed themselves to death and this happens sometimes and so I might touch on that a little bit you know what you can do what you can look for and then also just really summing it up is if you're one of those people who have had a lot of swarms that you haven't been able to catch that you haven't been able to prevent just remember Swarming is a natural reproductive process for your bees. It doesn't mean that you made a mistake. It doesn't mean that you're a bad beekeeper. It really, really doesn't. It happens to everyone from those people who've been doing this for like 35 years to people who are in their first year. So look at everything that we do as a learning opportunity. What could you have done differently or did you do everything? What did you learn about swarming when you witnessed this happening in your hives? I am so hard on myself when I make mistakes, so I'm not trying to be a hypocrite here. I understand why it's upsetting, but just remember to be gentle on yourself that we're working with these semi-domesticated species. They are not our dogs. We cannot train them to sit, lie down, do as we tell them. We're not neutering them, spaying them. We're not tightly controlling their reproduction. They're gonna do what they want. Bees are gonna be, right? 
so as always thank you so much for sticking with me for listening um I love hearing from you guys. You can email me at homesteadhensandhoney at gmail.com. You can drop me a comment on my website, which will be linked in the episode description. And um, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, all the social medias. Um, And just briefly before I go, um, obviously this past week, there's been a lot of discussion of race relations and uh, you know rioting and protests going on in the world. And really what I want to say, and I don't want to go into it too much as a white girl and also a white girl from a completely different country that has a very different history with slavery and blackness than we do here in the US. What I would just say is keep your minds open be accessible to other people's stories, lives and truths. And if you want to make a difference, I have shared a infographic on my Instagram about things that you can do right now to help. And just be safe. If you are involved in protests, please wear your masks. Um, COVID is still an issue. You deserve to be safe, not just in your community, not just around our police, but for your health. And for the people that you love, please wear masks. There are a number of charities that will be donating masks. You can find links to those online. And just everyone who's listening, please be safe. Please be mindful. And if you can, just support your community. And it's like I've been saying since the whole COVID thing started, we'll get through all of these things as a community. So just be there for each other. Be compassionate consider us just one great big working honeybee colony we're all trying to do our part do what you can and we will get through all of this together I know things are difficult so I appreciate you listening and sticking with me and I hope that like me you're finding solace in your colonies that you find your peace when you're with your bees um I will say that I've had bad days recently And sometimes, even though I'm not scheduled to be into my hives, I will go out and I'll just spend some time with them. And it always helps. Even if I'm tired and sore from lugging heavy, heavy, you know, brew boxes around, it's just so zen for me to get deep into my hives and just think about bees. And apparently I'm so zen when I'm thinking about bees that my husband actually watched a small herd of deer walk maybe four foot behind me when I was out with the hives I have no idea they were there I didn't know that I didn't hear them walk by I didn't sense anything nearby and it's all overgrown back there I should have at least heard them walking through the undergrowth I heard nothing because I was in my bee world and when I'm in my bee world all I can hear is those girls humming and buzzing and I'm just lost to my bee thoughts and I hope that you find that kind of peace with your hives as well So I'm going to sign off for today. Stay safe, stay healthy and stay self-isolated whenever you can. Wear your masks and your gloves. Huge thank you to all of you who are working and providing vital services. And that includes being the cashier at the grocery store. I don't ever want to hear people denigrating these jobs again. I've never liked it. And now it's more fundamental than ever that you guys are there so that we can buy our food. We need it. Um, so yeah, stay safe, stay healthy, stay self-isolated, and as always, hug your hens, and then wash your hands. Take care, guys. Until next time.